Now and Again is brought to you by the Cage Club Podcast Network. For all things Cage, Keanu, and more, head on over to cageclub.me. That is cageclub.me. We play this song on the radio. We play this song on the radio. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome back to now Volume 21, the birthday edition. Side B, B is for brunch. I just got a refill on this all-you-can-drink Bloody Mary. The waitress just brought over a red velvet pancake for now to celebrate its birthday. There's a lady with a small dog in her bag at the table next to us, and there are approximately 17 fixed gear bikes attached to the lamp outside of this lovely, lovely restaurant. And sitting across from me, my brunch partner, for now and for always, Nico Vasillo. Nico, how are you? I'm so drunk I already took my pants off. You can't do that at a restaurant. Um, that's what they said. Um, so, side A came and it went, and now is still doing the same kind of format it always has. And we're on the back end, which means VH1 pop and quote-unquote rock and maybe a country song or two. <sighs> so I guess, you know, we kind of have to jump into it. I'm willing. I'm able. I'm ready. I do think <sighs> All right. we're going to see some bad songs by some good artists. Yeah. We're going to see some bad songs by some bad artists. And we're going to see some good songs by okay artists. So I think I'm ready for this because it's, it's at least enough of a mix that I don't feel like I'm going to just be in for a beating. Yeah, the nice thing about Now 21 and doing a a drunk brunch for it is that I, I didn't feel the need to be drunk for this one. There's been a couple of nows where it's just like <laughs> I better I better just lose all inhibition so I come up with something to say. Uh, but this this is like a, this is a calm casual now. Honestly, there's nothing overtly offensive other than Chris Brown's existence on here. Uh, and and there's well okay I take that back because there's a song at the end where where I might go off Queen. But other than that, like, it's been a kind of a fine now, and it will continue to be a kind of fine now. And kind of fine, I feel like, is <laughs> is clearing the bar we've set for this fucking compilation at this point. I feel like part of the problem with trying to grade these nows holistically, like, to say, okay, this is what I feel about the series. This is this is how I feel about these nows. One of the things I feel like is that there there's no actual identity to now. The identity of now is whatever no. it needs to be to make the money to keep the hits coming. That's all they're trying to do. They're trying to mm-hmm. pander. So the question becomes, did they pander successfully? Did they pander in a way that left their audience feeling cold? We're the audience, you know, and we kind of were the goal audience, to be honest with you, and we're still kind of the goal audience. Getting white people to spend money in dumb ways, yeah, that's the goal. Because ultimately, I do kind of find these nows to be a big waste of money. You're always paying for a bunch of songs you don't want. It's impossible that you're not. Even people who say they listen to everything, like, you're, you're not going to find cover-to-cover gold here, which is why I'm still shocked that now exists when you can just Spotify playlist the stuff that you like. And even 10 years ago, I mean, this is, I don't know if I mentioned it on the first side, but this is April of 2006. It's like we're at a point where you can burn your own CDs and you can get a lot of tracks for free and i mean you could even just pay 99 cents for it on itunes buy the 10 you like put that on a cd it's like i i don't understand how these have continued to thrive it's boggling to me because one of the things that i i'm really glad you said you can burn your own cds i could burn cds in seventh grade so you can even put it on ipod yeah like there's so many ways to not have to listen to shit you don't want to listen to cds by this point for like seven years. I had multiple CD burners. I had a CD burner hooked up to my stereo system that could do things like uh, encode records and I had another one that was in my computer so I could burn files. It was never a matter of 
I don't know. To me, one of the things that I've always been baffled by is why people buy compilations. I've never really understood. I liked the compilations I got as a kid from like when my mom would renew her Entertainment Weekly subscription and we'd get Pure 90s and it was still like 1996 and they'd be saying that this was the best songs of the decade. You know, it was just a compilation CD. But right. these nows, they really push... They kind of push the envelope on was this a product that even I don't understand how they existed. I really don't. I feel like they, I feel like there are people for whom this would be a good selection of songs. Uh, that is not anybody who considers themselves a music connoisseur. Maybe that's where we're looking at it wrong. Right. Yeah. Maybe absolutely. we're looking at this too critically as people who obsess over our music, as people who think about what we purchase and we grade the music and we put it in terms of other things and we consider where the artist is coming from and as those guys I think these records are pointless to us but I feel like there's enough people who would want these five yeah but then again no I can't do it I just can't even justify it anymore because 99 cents because you can get the four you want for 99 cents and then burn it when now first started especially in the UK because that started in like the mid 80s like that's kind of understandable because You'd have to listen to the radio to get the song you liked. And even then, after a certain amount of time, it just wasn't there anymore. So you had to buy the things and, and now worked for that. And speaking of which, I just want to shout out our European correspondent at 4Push, F-O-R-P-U-S-H. He recently tweeted at, at me and at Now and Again, uh, saying that while digging through his parents' attic, he found what I believe is the first Now on vinyl up there. And he took a picture of it and there, there's enough hair on that, on that on that cover to do an entire episode just on hairstyles it is incredible so check out at chris podcasts or at four push um to to see that that picture and that throwback uh, it was kind of fun just looking at that but yeah like back then that it kind of makes sense but it's just it's just it's just still happening it's it's like we can't stop it now we've started but and it will it cannot possibly end and i think the next now that comes out in it'll be 2019 will be now 69 and if you think we are setting a theme for now 21, just wait until we get to that one, folks. I, yeah, I, cause again, I know that we have a regular listener, my friend Tori. She's a regular listener. She loves this show. She's actually one of our best, uh, our best marketing people. She talks all about the shows on Cage Club. And one of the things she jokes about is, you know, one of them is super about pop music and one of them is super about, you know, like, I don't know how to describe my relationship with music. Um, that, you know, you're super into the music from, this time, this is where we're starting to get into the pop music you know, right? And mm -hmm. I'm obsessed with talking about everything. So <laughs> I do sometimes think these episodes are you trying to like, you know, narrow me back down. Um, but so she, she's a big fan. She tells everybody about the show. And I know these are actually totally her thing. These hit everything she needs. It's like 10 songs from around the era that she wants, and it's already in a neat little package for her. It makes sure that the artists get their due. It's a great little way for her to stay current with music. And maybe she'll even listen to the other tracks on there, right? I know for her, mm. she loves things like this, and that's why she's super into listening to it, right? But I don't think I could deal with the unnecessary songs I wouldn't like. Like, I actually find soundtracks irritating when I only want four songs. Yeah. Like, my Tori Amos collection, I have a bunch of soundtracks. I have the Mission Impossible 2 soundtrack because it has Carnival. I have the Great Expectations soundtrack because it has Finn and Siren. Uh, but then that also kind of fits my Poe collection because it has an exclusive Poe song today. But 
Oh, it's got Life in Mono by Mono. So other than those three songs, I guess, I have no real need, or four songs, I have no real need for that soundtrack. The fact that I kind of wish I had multiple copies of it annoys me, because I wish I could keep it with my Poe stuff. And my Tory stuff. I'm not someone who can deal with songs I don't want. If I'm never going to listen to it, I just don't want it there. If there's an album I love, and it has 17 songs, and I don't like two of them, I'll create a playlist of the album and delete the two songs. Absolutely. I I, I mentioned this on the year-end, uh, or the year-in-review episode, uh, and I've mentioned it before on the show. I'm a big supporter. Um, one of the nice things about digital and MP3 files, you can just change an album. Like you can just rearrange the order or add songs that are B sides that should never have been B sides, uh, and replace songs that should have never made the album. And you can just make something that you want to listen to and you enjoy. And I mentioned that um, with with some clever cutting and rearranging and adding the EP to the album, the the Pale Waves album ended up kind of not being a disappointment in my world. But it, like it is, it's a piece of shit album. But you can change it and make it kind of listenable. I'm a big fan of that. Like I support making music adapt to you like enjoy the things you enjoy in whatever way you want to i mean you can't say that it's a great album when you've changed it from top to bottom but you can still make it enjoyable for you and i like that digital can do that and you should do it frankly i feel like that's something we've always kind of had to do as um obsessive devourers of music one of the things is I tend to like artists who have a lot of b-sides and a lot of bonus track versions now i did not know when mm-hmm. you explained to me is that uh, bonus track versions exist in Japan because Japanese albums are so much more expensive. So, yeah, they make sure those things are fucking packed to the gills. I could never have told you that growing up, but I sure did go out of my insane way to collect everything I could. Uh, BT time. I don't think I've brought him up in a number of episodes. So, oh well, it's a drinking episode, so I'll drink to that. Yeah, man, get real, get real crunk, right? Because I think we're still in the <laughs> crunk era. I think we can kind of get away with crunk if my humps is out. Um, yeah, close. So, BT is famous for having different length versions of his tracks because he's, first and foremost, an EDM artist. He started in an era where it was mm-hmm. very common for artists to remix their own songs over and over again. Uh, one of my favorite BT albums, Movements in Still Life, there is something like eight versions of some of those songs, and it's just which version is it on? It's on the limited edition European version, it's on the tour European version, it's on the standard European version, it's on the extended European version, or the American version, or the American two-disc, or the American DJ copy, the extended only vinyl version, the double extended single. One of those things. And there used to be a file-sharing service called Audio Galaxy. And what Mm -hmm. Audio Galaxy was incredible for was it indexed everything that everybody had in their share folders with that name, but you could literally pick the person you wanted to download from by song length. So I was able to look at every version of BT's um, Namaste, and I could find all the different length versions using All Music Guide and comparing the lengths or using uh, cdnow.com or ABC com all these different like record stores online and I could like piece together the versions of the albums I wanted and I would sit there and I would take a look and I would have like every official remix and every uh, official version and I would always do what I could like honestly I would still buy the American versions that I was able to buy but as a 15 year old 16 year old I couldn't afford every German version of the record but I would cut together mm-hmm. my favorite yeah. version 
and I would burn it at what you know. You had an eighty-minute limit, and my favorite version of every song was in a, invariably the twelve-minute version, so I could fit like <laughs> six per CD. Yeah, man, I've been making super cuts of albums and making the hard choice. Oh, you know, if I want to include all the Japanese bonus tracks and the one bonus track from Germany, I have to cut one of the main songs. Well, one of the bonus tracks is a cooler version of another song on the record. I'll cut the original. And you just you make these records how you want and I feel like that's something yeah. we've never been afraid to do as people who yeah. were never afraid to look a little bit deeper than the albums themselves exactly I mean it's just a fun experiment even and I've always loved making mixtapes I think there's an art to the to the flow of an album and we've talked about that before and how flow can totally just change an album in general uh, and yeah it's, it's just a fun experiment to me to try to fix the broken things sometimes even just like taking maybe two albums from an artist that came out around the same time and both are just okay like you just you just make one good album out of them and then you enjoy listening to that like it doesn't mean that both albums are good it just means that you have found a way to enjoy them more and i think finding a way to enjoy something is important in this hell world that we live in yeah there's two tori amos albums back to back american doll posse and abnormally attracted to sin and uh they're both like with bonus, uh, with this whole era of bonus tracks, like we just we've been discussing that you know there used to be the era of bonus tracks, and now the era of bonus tracks is gone. Uh, you know, with these super deluxe, super extended albums, and now albums are eleven songs again. And at the time, Tori Amos was churning out like nineteen and twenty song records with seven and nine and twelve bonus tracks, mm. and it she just and she started producing her own records, and that's the one thing I will say. A big change is I think somebody else should be producing her records from a, a, another point of view to be like, a few, you don't need to hit 80 minutes. You don't always need to hit 80 minutes. It does not always need to be 80 minutes. One of her records, uh, they actually had to print it on a special CD because it was 81 minutes. And wow. part of the goal of that was to make it harder to burn. It couldn't be copied. Mm. So That's interesting. Interesting. Yeah, Scarlet's Walk is like 81 minutes and two seconds or something so that it can't be copied. And that's just one way they did it. A lot of people take Abnormally Attracted to Sin and American Doll Posse and cut them down to one singular, like, 12-song album. Mm -hmm. But between the two of them, there's, like, 50 songs. And, I mean, we talked about, I talked about doing that with um, with Body Talk. I I think that's one good album uh, and maybe, like, a compilation of B-sides. The fun thing about Body Talk and there being so many songs, I feel like, I think maybe you even brought this up, is that everyone who would make an album out of body talk would make a different album and that's really interesting and exciting and it'd be fun to talk about like why you picked it that way that is a really i definitely wasn't me because that's really cool i love that it's like when we talked about how my buddy uh kyle from if everybody's been checking out access for podcast kyle is the guy that's covering champions with us uh kyle said that blackheart is one of his favorite songs on emotion I yeah. think Emotion is b- perfect beginning to end. I don't even like Blackheart. It's probably my mm-hmm. least favorite song in the entirety of Emotions A through C. It's probably my my absolute least favorite. But yeah, I possibly. don't I don't have any issue with someone loving it. I it's not one of those songs yeah. where I'm like, no, I don't get it. That's a song where I get it. Before we go back into the nows, we we briefly mentioned um like compilations and soundtracks and things like that. The Needle Drop, Anthony Fantano brought this up on a recent Q&A that he was doing, just kind of as a gag, but it's true. Um, someone messaged him about how the Shrek 2 soundtrack goes way harder than it would ever possibly need to, and he was like, what? And then he looked at it, 
And it's true. <laughs> like, so it's 2004, so we're not too far away from this uh, in now time. We're only two years away from it. But listen to this soundtrack, okay? <laughs> Let's just get the, the obvious Shrek stuff out of the way. Counting Crows accidentally, accidentally in love. No thanks. Uh, Dashboard Confessional as Lovers Go, because it's 2004. <laughs> Holding Out for a Hero remake by Jennifer Saunders. Don't know who that is. Um, well, hold on. That's Jennifer Saunders. That's like absolutely fabulous Jennifer Saunders. Oh, was she like a voice in the movie? Maybe? She may have been, but I would also like to point out that the Imogen Heap cover of that is the theme song to X's for Podcast. <laughs> okay. She was the fairy godmother in Shrek 2. So there you go. <laughs> Antonio Banderas and Eddie Murphy, I'm assuming in character, covering Live in La Vida Loca. <laughs> oh my god. But then... But then, Frau Frau, David Bowie and Butterfly Boucher covering Changes, The Eels, Pete Yorn covering The Buzzcocks, Tom Waits, Nick Cave and the Bad Seeds. What the fuck? I just need to point out that this is so many of my artists that it, like, makes my head hurt. And I hate Shrek. So, like, I love Shrek 2, though. Shrek 2 is amazing. That kind of sounds like some, like, major audiophile was given, like, executive producer control of the Shrek 2 soundtrack as part of a Make-A-Wish program kind of thing. <laughs> and they were like, what do you want? And he was like, have you guys ever heard of this random Canadian artist, Butterfly Bowsher? She released an album called Flutterby. It's really amazing. And then her follow-up album, Scary Fragile, also really amazing. But no one's ever heard of her. Do you think we should reunite a band that was disbanded after one failed record? Oh, actually, no, wait. Oh, no, I know why Frufur's on that. Because their cover of Holding Out for a Hero was in Shrek 2. Yeah, that's that's the track. There's multiple Holding Out for Heroes on the soundtrack. Wait, how many covers of it are on there? Two. Oh, okay. I thought you said four for a second, and I was like, why? The the only one that's not on here is basically the Bonnie Tyler one. Uh, I, I love the Fru-Fru one because it's uh, my it's it's the X is for podcast theme song, so yeah. I love it. It's my faves. But uh, yeah, Shrek 2, Tom Waits, Nick Cave. <laughs> That's a thing. David Bowie. Back to now 21. Uh, <laughs> let's just jump into it because we've got uh, Kelly Clarkson with Because of You. Take away the fact that this track and video is very um, Lifetime original movie. You can't take away the fact that Kelly Clarkson fucking goes hard on anything she's given. Like she, she's like she's like the <laughs> she's like the Nick Cage of the show. I think like no matter what she's given, she gives it all of her effort and she puts it all on the table and she doesn't phone it in ever. She's always going hard on on her tracks. Good for you. I, I like Kelly Clarkson because of that. Even though the song I think is really bland. Okay, yeah, I love Kelly Clarkson, and this is probably my least favorite song on Breakaway. I think Breakaway is like a solid A of an album. I think it is top to bottom for who she was. I think it was the best record she could have ever released. The second album by a an American Idol winner, I think that is literally best case scenario. Yeah. Far and away. It's, it's a brilliant record top to bottom. Every performance on there, she sings like if she does not get it right, they will not let her sing again. Mm -hmm. It's hard to talk anything about that record for me because like it was at a really interesting time in my life and it was super Im impactful on my songwriting. I hate this song. Le legit, like legit, this song is so overdramatic to me. Yeah. 
This song is Melissa Manchester, Don't Cry Out Loud. This song is so over the fucking top. Mm -hmm. And I sometimes think the lyrics almost border on Jim Steinem levels of storytelling and the songwriting. Where are they trying to conjure? It's all coming back to me now, and I would do anything for love. They because might be. I feel like there's a story here, and I feel like it's really specific, and that's what gets me. I I just think it's too much. I think the song is terrible. I think Kelly Clarkson gives an incredible performance mm-hmm. in a song that sucks. Now and, uh, now and again, complaint from this guy, so I'll, I'll drink to my own cliche. Um, unnecessary key change. Oh, no, I mean, I, I'm, 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 I'm going to back you up on that. I am famous for hating unnecessary key changes. Uh, it's why I think Key Change by Maya Rudolph is the funniest mm-hmm. single bit of musical comedy in the last decade. And that, for me, is tough because I have made it very clear that I think Andy Samberg is like the mm-hmm. second coming and the funniest person in the world. <laughs> I know, I have terrible taste, but I think Andy Samberg is literally the funniest person on TV. And I think Key Change is still the funniest piece of musical theater we've had in a really long time. And um, I I hate this song, man. It's just so dramatic. And you'll notice, I make fun of dramatic songs a lot. I called Jessica Simpson's Where You Are and um, I Want to Love You Forever over dramatic. I think MacArthur Park is the worst piece of music of all time (laughs) because it's over dramatic. Just... I kind of make fun of Stan a lot because, come to think of it, it was you. Like, is so <laughs> yeah. bad. And I just hate over... I just hate the drama. I hate it. I hate it. I hate it. I hate it. And this song is every... You were saying that certain things, certain elements were the worst elements of bling rap uh, on side A. I'm going to bring it really hard. This is the worst elements of emotional pop at mm-hmm. this era. This is the worst element of everybody getting to be a singer-songwriter. This was a time where people were churning out sing- singer-songwriter pieces at an unbelievable rate. Everybody had a lot of feelings at a fucking piano for a couple of years, and you just wanted to slap everybody in the fucking mouth until they stopped doing it. And this was at a point where as long as you were upset about something and hit a high note somewhere, the song, and you were already a hit, this song rested on Kelly Clarkson being likable. If this, if Kelly Clarkson wasn't likable, this song is whiny and desperate. Yeah. Yeah, telenovelas listen to the song and go, whoa, dial it back. <laughs> right? Yes. Yes, this is Lorenzo's oil. It's just <laughs> unacceptable. Next up is Natasha Bedingfield's Unwritten. Black Eyed Peas wrote songs to be, you know, what's played when you come back from commercial at the NBA championships. This is a song that's designed to sell Herbal Essences shampoo and pink razors. <laughs> and the thing is, I don't think it's that bad. I think this wasn't, I, I'm taking it back. I don't think it was written for that. I think it became that over the next couple of years, just because of, you know, kind of how the, the song feels and its mood. Um, I think they just, they just clipped parts of it and they were like, and buy, buy our products, ladies. And uh, I almost feel a little bad for Natasha Benfield for that because I think I think she does have more behind her music and her voice than that. But that is what she became. 
So I really, 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 really love Natasha Bedingfield as a songwriter. If like I think she's incredibly clever. I think she is very dexterous. She can do a lot of different things with her music and her voice, and I think that translates really well to somebody who shapes music. I don't always love her music itself, but it's one of those things I have an incredible respect for the artist, even if their art isn't my thing. This song was written as a gift for her younger sister. Okay. So Natasha Bedingfield's brother, Daniel Bedingfield, appeared on the show with Gotta Get Through This and oh. If You're Not The One. She then had, yeah, now she's had several singles. It's this, these words. I actually loathe these words. It's one of my least favorite songs, if you remember what I'm talking about. I love you, I love you, you, I love you. Yeah, Yeah. I hate that song, right? Yeah, not good. I love the, the verse, but the verse could be from any song. This song and Pocket Full of Sunshine and... Yeah. Uh love like this she had a number of really smart pop hits right so this song was written for her younger sister who was like 18 and didn't know what she wanted to do and it's got to probably be hard when you've got like two semi-famous older siblings and she mm-hmm. writes this song and it literally is meant to be begging her sister to never forget to celebrate every single moment in life because the rest is unwritten right now you have this Everything else is whatever it's going to be, but you have right now, and it's beautiful. You can feel the rain on your skin, and it's no one else can live it for you. And it's like literally, I actually think it's a tremendous piece of music and art, and I love the meaning of it. And it was created in a time that, by definition, was saccharine. So mm-hmm. the production, great production, but it is very. I think about those purposely faded chorus oh woes at the very end in the background oh, with the, the the choir yeah and i feel i feel so much like if you put this song in the hands of and i can't even think of like i'm struggling to come up with the right artist but if you put this song in the hands of a 1994 whitney houston it would still work. If you put this mm-hmm. song in the hands of a 1999 Michelle Branch, it would still work. If you put this mm-hmm. ha- this song in the hands of a 2014 Ariana Grande, it would still work. Because mm-hmm. the frame of the song is great. The production is so annoying. Yeah, and I, I think that's kind of where it's become this commercial song. And, yeah. and I, I do think Natasha Benningfield probably has more talent than that and I almost feel bad that every time I listen to the song I'm like yeah my hair would smell nice if it smelled like <laughs> but but like that's it like that's just that's just kind of what the tone of this song is and it's kind of what it's become and I, I can't separate that kind of commercial jingle from what this song is you know and can I actually bring up something real quick about commercial jingles with you for one second it's so random sure. and you can cut it if it's got to be cut but I thought this was fascinating sure. so my husband and I spend every minute of every second together and you know my my cabo is my everything and he and i have really interesting taste in music and we we don't always agree right but at the gym because i go to retro fitness tempted by squeeze came on and Mm. we both began singing it instinctively and we were like we have this song in common after being together since 2007 we're still surprising each other with songs we have in common it's fucking ridiculous so I comment that for some reason in the PLJ of my 7 year old brain I thought that Squeeze's 
Attempted sounded a lot like Don Henley's cover of Sit Down, You're Rocking the Boat. So okay. we're talking about this, sure. right? And uh, we go online and we look it all up. And it turns out that Don Henley did that cover in like 1992 for a Greatest Hits collection. So then we look up Tempted by Squeeze. That was from 1980. I would have, yeah, I could have yeah. never said that Tempted was from 80. Because to me, Tempted has sort of a timeless quality. Does that make any sense? <sighs> I don't... Mm. I, f- mm, I feel like Tempted really does sound like early 80s, late 70s UK pop. See, to so me, it, it sounds like... I'm 80- not seeing it from the same angle. It sounds like 85 to me. I don't know. Like, it was much later in my head, and the Don Henley song was much earlier in my head. But anyway, here's the other thing. It never charted in the top 40 in any country. Interesting. It's a song that actually wasn't a success for Squeeze, that later was used in several commercials by several different companies and then Reality Bites was a fan uh, whoever worked on Reality Bites was a fan and had them re-recorded in 1994 so there's a re-recording in 1994 that increased its popularity but Tempted receives more radio airplay now than just about ever oh wow it's, it kind of pulled it. it's a wonderful life yeah it really did and we just think that's a great song oh it is it's great I like that this show, and this is why we are good for this show, and we, we're good for talking about this, is like, we're, we're debating the intricacies of, like, plus or minus two or three years of UK pop. <laughs> like, when when does this specific song sound like it came out? This really sounds like a June 82 kind of a song. And I'm like, no, it definitely sounds 1985 to me. I didn't just say, like, 1980s somewhere. I'm like, no, 85. Oh. Uh, Nico, can you do me a favor? Yeah. Uh, look at this photograph. Look at this photograph. Every time I do, it makes me laugh. How did our eyes get so red? And what the hell is on Joey's said? Uh, uh, this song sucks. Uh, I just want to know. I hate this song. They're a joke already, right? Oh, yeah, absolutely. Okay. Okay. Because it's really funny when I was doing the last episode, and you'll get to it, we were talking about Rockstar by Post Malone. And yeah. I found a mashup of Nickelback's Rockstar <laughs> over that. And I was like, oh, I didn't know they were funny oh, again. Yes. Oh, love it. I, uh, I think this song has a competent chorus, which I think is maybe the nicest thing I can say about this song or Nickelback. I think we actually have to talk about something else. And I don't think that you're being very reasonable. I think if you don't think oh? we need to discuss the lyric and what the hell is on Joey's head, <laughs> then I don't know who you are. What the hell is on Joey's head? Is he being attacked by a bird? <laughs> is it like, is it like, there's a bird? That, oh, right, that's when the sturgeon, is, is a sturgeon a bird or a fish? <laughs> that's a fish. Fuck. <laughs> What's a bird then? Like when the seagull, when the seagull killed Joey. Oh, that's when the seagull ate Joey to death. A bird is a descendant of dinosaurs that flies and has brittle bones. All right, all right over here, Mr. Paleontologist, Chris Paleontologist over here. <laughs> Stay tuned for my Jurassic cast where we go dinosaur by dinosaur through the Jurassic movies. <laughs> <laughs> and we compare them to the toys over on HTML. So, yeah, exactly. Uh, uh Brontosaurus, I think you mean a Patasaurus motherfucker. I would just like to go out of my way to say that I am actually very disheartened that there are no non-binary toys. 
how hard would it have been to have a non-binary dinosaur? Uh, well... <laughs> I don't know what we're doing anymore. <laughs> I was... <laughs> so the plot of this episode is a disaster, because the two of us are inebriated beyond discussion. I was saying that that was something we might do over on HTML, where we would compare the dinosaurs to the toys, and that we would... Because I was making fun of the fact that people seem to think that social justice warriors are looking... I'm sorry. So, in my head, there was a much larger thread. People seem to think that social justice warriors are idiots who care about things like the gender of um, Santa or gingerbread. Or gingerbread, yes. It's more that um, we were on the third movie of the Marvel Cinematic Universe in the third episode. And that's the point at which I realized, wow, it took four movies to get to... Sorry, I took three movies to get to four named women. Jesus, which means at least three of those four are just love interests, right? Um, three of them were banged, yeah. There you go. And then one of them gets banged by somebody from another movie later on. Hell so, yeah, I'd love to bang in the Marvel Universe. Actually, no, that's another thing. While everything stays visibly heterosexual, all the banging except for talking about banging that happened off-screen disappears. There's no hmm. banging yeah, in the Marvel Cinematic right. Universe. It's in the first two movies in Star-Lord, but, like, that's it. There's, like, no banging in the Marvel Cinematic Universe. It's nuts. Well, well we're going to keep looking at that hypothesis because we're only so many movies in. But it's been a lot of fun. It's a great show. Check it out. But, yeah, I was making fun of the fact that people think that we would complain about the gender of or the lack of non-binary uh, dinosaurs. Uh, well, well, sir, if you remember Jurassic Park, you would know that life finds a way and that all of the dinosaurs somehow become female and are able to give birth. <laughs> I'm sorry. Now I want to keep now I, I want to keep having not seen any of them after the first one. Oh, that's that's absolutely correct. <laughs> I've seen the first one and I saw it in a group setting with a bunch of people who had already seen it, so they all kept screaming about it as it was happening right before it would happen. So the entire movie was me watching three people scream at my television for about two and a half hours. That's an okay way to see The Room. That's not an okay way to see Jurassic Park. Oh, I disagree. It was one of my favorite experiences ever. I've never seen three grown adult men freak out about dinosaurs before. But there in my living room were three grown adult men shouting and pointing at the screen. The raptor's about to come! And like, it was something else. (sighs) So, um... Have we figured out what the hell is that on Joey's head? It's, an, it's a seagull that then ate Joey, and then <laughs> the song ended, and we moved on to the All-American Rejects' Dirty Little Secret. I'll keep you my dirty little secret. Don't tell anyone or you'll be just another regret. One of the best pop-punk songs of this time. That's all I really have to say. And I think, honestly, the next few songs will answer as to why this one stands out, because it feels different. It doesn't feel as self-pitying and whiny, which is something that pop punk tends to do a lot. In both in both um, lyrics, in the song writing, and in the performance, it has a confidence that a lot of pop punk does not have, and it stands out from its peers at this time, even if the band, sort of as a whole after this point just doesn't and is not that interesting even before this they weren't that interesting they have a very small window of this album and some of the singles off of it where they rise above their pop punk contemporaries and yeah no this is this is i think a, a song that still holds up 
So I have an interesting relationship with the All-American Rejects. The guy I was seeing uh, around the time they were pretty famous was super into them. So I've actually Mm -hmm. seen them in concert a few times. I've heard their first two albums beginning to end along with a number of bonus tracks and some of their independent material. I have no problem with the All-American Rejects. I just don't think they're that special. I think they're pretty forgettable. I think most of the bands in this genre kind of fit into that. I would agree. Uh, Tyson Ritter, their lead singer, he was... uh, A lot of people found him really attractive. He had these piercing blue eyes. And he now is on the TV show Preacher. Oh, okay. Yeah. uh, Preacher is one of my favorite comics of all time. Uh, The guy who wrote it, Garth Ennis, he is like the problematic comic machine. But when he writes characters, he writes characters better than anybody else in the world. So it's always worth it to strap in and see if this is going to be one where he pushes a mentally disabled, morbidly obese person out of a helicopter to squish other people to death, or if he's going to maybe rise above it. Uh, Unfortunately, they do all turn into that, so just always be ready to step away. And uh, the All-American Rejects, I think... I don't think their music is remembered. I don't think in 20 years... You know, it's something that's interesting. I notice how many songs by how many artists remain in kind of classic radio rotation. So Mm -hmm. sometimes I wonder who's going to be in our classic radio rotation. The fact that Q1043 decided that Green Day was going to make it into that when American Idiot came out and When I Come Around started getting played in this sort of like, oh, classic rock, good guys sort of category, which... (sighs) That's one thing, right? Yeah. But on the subject of Tempted, Tempted is a song that was less popular in its time than it is retrospectively. There's a lot of songs that have not been remembered as well or have been remembered maybe better than they should be. They weren't the hits that we remember them as, but they've had a really strong longevity. I am sure Toxic by Britney Spears has had a better shelf life than it had debut. I think that's a record that has aged really well and new generations resonate with it and love it and think it's tremendous. There's so many songs by NSYNC that you just don't hear. There's so many songs by the Backstreet Boys that you just don't hear. Mm -hmm. And they were just as big hit singles as any other Backstreet Boys song. Why is that one remembered? Well, something about the song has a quality that allows it to continue. I do not believe the All-American Rejects have a single song that has that quality. I believe their singles were Swing Swing, I forgot the next single off that album, um, Dirty Little Secret, and Move Along. Mm-hmm. They followed it up with some stuff that just wasn't as popular. They're not a bad band, but they're a band with no strong identity that connects them to anything in pop culture. None of these songs are over-associated with a film in a way that either increases their value or deadens it. So it's not like it was even that they were... So I've come up with a term for it when it's music that I... like. I never want to hear the fray advertising a movie again. I now refer to those songs as trailer trash. Mm-hmm, yeah. So uh, I don't even think they're good trailer trash. They're forgettable trailer trash. They're CW episode of the week trailer trash, (laughs) not, you know, Judd Apatow movie. And that's the difference. I think I have seen, I have heard this song come on the radio in the last like year. You can get a room full of people around our age at a karaoke night singing the song. Um, This is probably their biggest song. And it is, it is still remembered more than like a gives you hell for sure. Um, And, and, Oh, that was the song I forgot. Yeah. And I do think, I, I think they stand out 
you know, I'm talking more about the context of pop punk in 2006 versus anything with any kind of longevity. Uh, just in, especially in comparison to the next two songs on this, which are also pop punk songs from 2006. And this, like I said, it's not as whiny and and self-loathing as those songs are. It's got an identity. It's got a guitar solo, which none of those fucking songs had. There, there's a confidence to it that I like that makes it stand out. Like it's, it's saying like, hey, let's just keep being each other's side pieces. Um, and that's okay as long as no one finds out. Whereas every other song in this genre is like, Ariel, why won't you date me? And you just, it, it doesn't, that doesn't. I'm actually going to really counter that. I think this song is deeply misogynistic and disgusting. Uh, Interesting. I'll keep you my dirty little secret. One night you'll be just another regret, hoping you can keep it. No one has to know. He's literally saying, I'm embarrassed about you, but I'm going to fuck you anyway. This is the most misogynistic pop punk gets. When the lyrics are, all you got to keep is strong, move along, move along, like I know you do. It's literally saying, you know, oh, it doesn't matter. When stuff's hard, just keep going. It literally takes the idea of the struggle out. Their lyrics are so vanilla and so bland. Swing, swing, swing. Oh, yeah, I'm the not defend that song. My heart is crushed by a former love. Can you help me find a way to carry on again? Once again, the lyrics are not, I want to connect with you. It would be one thing if he said, we can be each other's dirty little secrets, and one day we'll just be each other's regrets, hoping we can keep it. No, he says you. He makes it clear he's embarrassed about this woman, but he's gonna. Fuck I don't see her it anyway. as embarrassed. Uh, this- see, I, I read it differently, especially because of the bridge. I really feel like it's he is just. I mean, he's cheating on someone, and that's what this is about. Like that. That doesn't make him a good person. Like, but it's 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 the story that is being told from the you know the the, the singer. Um, I don't I don't see it as. I just think it's as whiny as anything else oh, in the okay. genre. I think it's. I think it's just as bad as anything. It's more like whiny mm. straight man crap. Mm, I think it has. I think it has a little bit more. Um, like I said, confidence where the rest of this genre is just like shifting your pivoting on your foot while looking down and holding your hands behind your back. <laughs> like every other song is is fucking Millhouse, which is crazy because I know I know that we feel the exact switch on this next song. Ah, uh, okay, yeah, I think this song uh, is well written, but I can't understand a single fucking word in it, so it kind of falls apart for me because <laughs> I tried and I literally can't understand a thing he's saying. No. I, I'm gonna I've come to a thing so I don't really want to talk about it too much but there's something I'm working on oh yeah on. it's Fall Out Boy Where Dance Dance there's a thing I'm working on where I'm uh I'm writing a significant amount of music and one of the things that I'm really aware of is I'm working so hard on these goddamn words that I'm putting with this music and all I can think to myself is no, I want these words clearly enunciated. I like <laughs> I want people to know my lyrics and I am not in any way changing that I love Fallout Boy but I think if I'm going to take so many goddamn pot shots at mumble rap, I got to take humongous pot shots at mumble rock. <laughs> I 
I know the words, and, like, I'll be honest, I can pick most of them out, like, I, I could. I do think it's really funny when people misunderstand his lyrics. I, for some reason, have not had as much trouble understanding his lyrics over the years, but I understand that it sounds like fucking nonsense. Like, it's, it literally sounds like nonsense, and one of my favorite things in the world is I'm an evil man, I'm a little man, and I'm also evil, mm-hmm. also into cats. Yeah, of course. I think they are such a talented band, and I think the music of this song is, 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 oh my god, it's so epic. I just think this is such an incredible song. And the lyrics are a weird balance of confrontational and self-loathing in a way that I think highlights your point and a little bit undercuts the misogyny of it, but definitely highlights your original point about them. Um, why don't you show me the little spark you've been saving for his mattress? I only want sympathy in the form of you crawling into bed with me. There is something troublingly self-loathing about this song. And I think it's painfully dark in a way that should not have been a single that worked. But there was something about Fallout Boy and this weird little lumberjack man <laughs> who kept yodeling at the microphone and no one could figure out what the fuck he was yodeling but it sounded really good because that's his voice man it's what set him apart patrick stump you couldn't understand a word he said but when he unhinges that jaw and lets out that noise it's fucking incredible you always believe his passion he never sounds bored yeah, in some ways, I kind of treat Fall Out Boy the same way I treat, like, Japanese punk that I listen to a lot, where it's just, like, the vocals are another instrument, because, I mean, I don't know what the fuck they're saying. Uh, <laughs> it's really the same with him, because this isn't even a version, like, with um, Sugar We're Going Down, I just misunderstand everything. This one, I, I literally I literally don't think it's words. It's just humming and, like, some some words, and uh, <laughs> I, I don't have anything for... Um, the, the vocals in the song. But if, if you do know the lyrics and you say they're very self-loathing, Pete Wentz has always really been open about his depression. So that does make sense since he was the main songwriter. But at the same time, I feel like his lyrics, it, it reminds me of the, I don't know if the story is apocryphal. I don't think it is. But in the in the first Star Wars movie or in Empire Strikes Back, Harrison Ford just apparently famously improved a lot of his lines. And at some point he turned to George Lucas and was like, George, you can write this shit, but nobody can say it. And I feel like that's what Patrick Stump is like trying to sing Pete Wentz's lyrics. Because they, most of them like have no cadence, uh, have no rhythm. They're just like these ideas. They're almost uh, like, like bad high school poetry put to music. So it, it's probably tough to sing, especially when you're not the songwriter. To kind of compare them to another band from the same time that they got way too many comparisons to for no reason, Panic at the Disco, just as much luck understanding what the fuck he's saying, <laughs> right? Yeah. There was something about high performance that seemed to really cancel out the way people felt about not being able to understand your lyrics, it kind of makes me think of something Paula Cole said. She didn't include lyrics in her Grammy-winning album This Fire because she wanted people to hear the songs and whatever you thought the lyrics were, that's the journey they took you on. Mm, I like that. And, uh, yeah, you know what? Like, it's a little pretentious. Like, I, uh, sure, probably, but it actually kind of meant a lot to me. 
And in a weird way, it inspired the fact that I love it. Yeah, I always, you know, I'm super into minimalist packaging. I love like putting everything really tiny so it's hard to read. I don't know why, but like, yeah, you know what? The lyrics can be in there, but they don't have to override everything. Let the art, let the art speak to the person. Don't, don't explain everything about the art. The lyrics, as long as they're mostly understandable, right? But here's an example of where I think you really do need to <laughs> release either a pronunciation guide or an annotation, maybe something, because at some point, yeah, it it just does get to be a lot of fun making loud Patrick Stump noises. And I feel that Paul Cole thing, and I think that's really interesting because I think everyone has had a song. Um, and I'm not talking this in like the um, uh, excuse me while I kiss this guy. There's a bathroom on the right kind of like misheard a, a famous lyric or whatever. Um, I'm talking about you spend a lot of time thinking a song was about this and maybe this song has an emotional impact with you. And then you find out that the lyric is actually kind of different. It, it changes the, the text of what you thought was an emotional connection. Um, and that kind of sucks. Um, I can think of at least two or three songs where I've had that happen to me. And so, so I do almost like the idea of um, keeping, keeping the mystery, let, letting the songs, taking the songs out of the creator's hands and her just being like, it's yours now. Um, I really like that. For me, it's actually a song by an artist I, I love who no one really knows, but she she's had just about the most profound impact on me of anybody, someone named Charlotte Martin. And she has a song called Keep Me In Your Pocket. And I misunderstood a lyric. I thought she was saying, and it's going to sound really silly, but I thought she was saying, your bomb threat isn't more than I can handle. Mm-hmm. And it's your palm sweat is more oh. than I can handle. <laughs> <laughs> and it it's a totally different lyric. Yeah. And both of them have incredible meaning to me. We've talked a lot about pop punk on this one, more so than usual. Um, but we've got these fucking also rands. Reliant K, who I am, hates who I've been. And I think kind of some of the stuff we're saying about the worst of pop punk is, is really uh, is really shown in this song. It's got a lot of the worst parts of pop punk. That that pop punk riff that like if you can just listen just picture a pop punk lead riff and like that's that's what you're hearing you're hearing the riff in this song it's really bad it's really self pitying uh, there there's so much it's it's every newfound glory yellow card song you've ever heard before I'm gonna be honest I think that all four of the last songs on this record are like really good examples of I just. I don't think the next four songs are great and this just kind of bums me out because I really like the gorillas and I really like gay Euro trash. So the fact that I don't like half of this bums me out. I mean, we can just go straight into dare. I just want to put like, I do think Reliant K is, I like that you said also Rans. Mm-hmm. I think that was a really poignant, important distinction. It's not that Reliant K are one of the bands that got forgotten. You know, when you talk about artists, I'm so glad she's finally fucking famous, but we, I think if you go back and you listen to the first year of this podcast, we sit around going, I just don't know why Janelle Monet isn't famous <laughs> every other episode. And, you know, I, it's, it's not that Reliant K are, uh, I'm, you know, I'm trying to come up with a Reliant K aren't the Nick Drake of this piece. Reliant K are forgotten for a reason. Mm-hmm. Yeah. There's not good. Absolutely. They're very oh, right. Them. Mm-hmm. I mean I barely knew who they were at the time when I was in when I was experiencing the genre and enjoying it. 
yeah, I just I'm I am really bummed out to go to Dare because I kind of can't figure out how the gorillas have a song I don't love. Oh wow, see, this might be my favorite gorilla song. <laughs> Forgot it existed again. I think it's so I fun. I forget this. This is a dance in your bedroom kind of song. Uh, I, I get a lot of may, maybe the the extremely chavy uh, backup singer is a little oppressive, but for the most part, I think this is a, a fantastic song. That if this was another artist, would you dislike it as much, or is it the fact that it's Gorillas doing this song? That's such a great question. And like, I, I, I feel like, yeah, it's not a Gorillaz-esque song, but I think Gorillaz have always been a band that defied genre. I would like this song by Foster the People. Okay. So figure it I mean, you know, and I really like that you asked me that because it is something shitty that I don't like about myself. I really hate that the origin of art matters to me. I wish it didn't. I wish that was something I could change about the way my brain works, right? Like, it's, it's just who I am. I I used to really, really, really love a comic book artist named Howard Chaikin. Mm-hmm. If you look up Howard Chaikin's art, it is fucking, like, you can smell the fucking gunpowder and cum on his art. Mm-hmm. Like, it's so fucking masculine. There's just something about it, right? And I don't mean masculine as a good or bad thing. I just mean there's something really, like, gritty, male, heavy, thick whip them out and compare them kind of hairy balls about his art. And he is, unfortunately, a couple of, I guess two years ago, they ran a really intense piece on his very transphobic history because he had written a transphobic comic very recently and everybody at the company that was publishing it, Image, was like, no, it's not transphobic. This is a one-off in his career. It's just this story. Take a look at the story before you judge. And somebody wrote a piece that documented eight or nine examples of transphobia in his art going back 25 years. <sighs> He's ruined. I just can't find myself enjoying his art anymore. And right. that devastates me. I know we've both talked about it, but I'm going to say it one more time. The guy who made me feel okay about having mental illness, Louis C.K., yeah. taken from me. I just can't deal with it anymore. Like, just And like not like I can't deal with it. Like, nah, he's ruined. It's fine. He's fucking ruined. Kevin Spacey, fucking ruined. It's fine. Just, yeah, and by fine, I mean, it, they're, I'm just, I have to commit to it. I want to, but, right, so, in those ways, I love Kevin Spacey and, you know, Louis C.K. and Howard Chaikin. I love that I can't help but separate, I, ha- I love that I can't separate the art from the artist. I love it. Mm-hmm. However, there's times it really bites me in the ass and I wind up like thinking to myself, I should like that. Why can't I just like that? And it's just a mental thing. I really wonder, now that you say, would I like it by someone else? Probably. Hmm. Okay, well, there you go. Interesting. Um, and, and I think some of it comes from gorillas. <laughs> Maybe, um, uh, I, don't, I don't know what the word for it is, but I don't, I don't really dig how they have like this whole... Um, 
like meta overarching story about the gorillas that are going from album to album. Um, you can keep that. I, I don't care. Kind of like uh, maybe it's, it's not as pretentious and goofy as Coheed and Cambria when they do it because gorillas are at their core a comic book. And I, I guess this is this is kind of supposed to be from what I understand, this kind of supposed to be showing that the, the, the character of noodles, the, the young, the young lady bassist, you know, she, she kind of enjoys her own music outside of what they're making with gorillas or something, something from what I was reading. I don't know, but it's, it's apparently why it's different and why it's solely her in the video, as opposed to the rest of the gorillas. Not that that really matters. Uh, but that's just a thing gorillas do is they have this whole mythos behind them. And it is part of why that, you know, taking that into something that I do enjoy, gorillas don't necessarily fit into one genre. And I like that they can be all over the place. Like Plastic Beach doesn't sound like anything off of the first couple of Gorillaz albums. Yeah, agreed. Also, I like that they're in the Powerpuff Girls. <laughs> yes, yes, they are. That is canon now. Is that one of the the, the bad guy or whatever took over for the bassist or something? <laughs> I don't, I don't know. I can't be arsed to figure out a band's yeah. arc. It's, I, I think. I think it's really interesting, though, because I do love the Gorillas. This isn't a song I don't love. That's, that's literally mm-hmm. it. I, I'm a big Gorillas fan. I think they've come up once or twice, and I've talked about how much I love them, and I love the concept, and I love the story. I maybe didn't think this last album was the greatest thing in the world. Yeah, it's whatever. I, I thought it... I, I don't want to say I felt it was whatever. I think I played it three times. And, you know, it's interesting when you play an album once, and you can still sing the songs from it. To, you know, a year later or something, like the songs just stuck with you somehow. Mm-hmm. I feel like the Gorillas are a band like that, whose songs usually do stick with me. Which is one of my comment that this one doesn't bothers me. So, I love their arc. I love the story. You know, we were talking about Body Talk before, but Body Talk is this incredible like journey that you get to piece together. There's no actual story, but you can kind of pretend there's a story. It's really kind of like a song cycle, maybe. But like, it's kind of a story. The Gorillas do give you enough of a story that I that I buy into it. They put in enough effort. I don't think everybody puts in enough effort when Tori or uh, Nikki, you, you know, Amos and Minaj respectively, launch new characters into their universe. Right. I'm always kind of like, oh, okay, well, it's basically you. Mm-hmm. Sure. Okay, whatever. But when the gorillas, I, I really don't think of gorillas as, oh, right, the guy from Blur. Yeah, same. I think that's a fun trivia aspect of Gorillaz, but he, he Damon Albarn has managed to separate himself kind of from the band he created, which is really unique and cool. Yes. From both bands he's created. I feel like he exists as an entity outside of Blur and outside of the Gorillaz. And by I've, virtue of the other one existing. Right, and I've never listened to his other, what, The Good, The Bad, and The Queen or something like that. I've never dabbled in, in that project he's done. Um, I, just, I He just... Dude is always making music, and I, I can get down with that, good or bad. Just like people who grind that shit out um, and just love to do the thing that they're doing. It's something I'm super Prince, into, whether I like what? every part of it or not. 41, 41 records underneath Prince's house or something, you know? Yeah. And if you were a member of his fan clubs and you got the other 67,000 records that came out each month, Prince was such a fucking weird person like that. He would be like, join my fan club, get a record every month. What? Yeah. Most of the songs are just 45 minutes of him going ah, over like a funky beat, but like I'm into it. Uh, can can we just keep stretching this conversation so we don't have to talk about the next song? I literally didn't think this song was real. I thought this song was like a parody that like I seriously thought this was like an SNL song parody. I thought this was a joke. 
I've spent this whole time thinking this was a joke, and I think one time on the show previously you'd mentioned this was a real song, which was the only reason when I saw it here I didn't think it was a joke. I was I was like, is it like when they did the sunscreen song, and that like kind of shouldn't be on here? Always wear sunscreen. Is it like when they did that? Because okay, okay, no, this Uh, yeah, I'm I'm mad, bro. Yeah, this is Trace Atkins, Honky Tonk Badonkadonk. Shut my mouth, slap your grandma. There ought to be a law. Get the sheriff on the phone. Lord have mercy, how'd she even get them bitches on? That Honky Tonk Badonkadonk. This song infuriates me. This song makes me angry that I was born with ears. <laughs> I, I just, I fucking hate this. Like, uh, flames on the side of my head, loss of words. I just. I'm going to attempt to explain why I find the song so offensive, but like it's gonna take some time and it's gonna take some editing because I'm just gonna be I'm just gonna fumble over my own anger a lot. <laughs> so, FYI, so if this sounds like a weird uh, a bunch of cuts, like it sounds like fucking a, a YouTube blogger style editing, uh, I apologize. But man, I don't think I can talk about the song without getting furious. I I I have an opinion. Uh, I'm pretty sure you will knock out my opinion and your explanation of why you find this song infuriating. Um, it does come down to the word appropriation. Yep, mine. Oh, God, word for word. I think we're going to... This, this, I think, is it, the epitome of, of, of appropriation. Yeah, this is... And, and, and the reason the appropriation is so aggravating is because I bet if Missy came on saying, badonk, donk, donk, it would be... It would not... In the... I'm not trying to... I'm not grouping any group of people. I am not saying all people who like this song would feel any way about the music that this song is drawn from. Oh, I would. I will not say all people because no. I know people who like both. I don't know how you live in the dichotomy of a, of a culture that is ensconced heavily in the idea that progressive change is wrong and accepting things is wrong but okay uh, you know it, you know what you know what okay i don't want to say anything because i don't want to be that guy and i don't I'm not trying to get political even for one fucking second right now but this is a really tense couple of weeks we've been living in mm-hmm. politically speaking and i've been really reserved and i've been really good on my other shows because my other shows that's not what we talk about in the least right but my favorite thing to sum up the last couple of fucking weeks with everything going on with politics in this country is that post that says millennials stop demanding comp- uh, stop demanding um, participation trophies and the response being okay it's time to get rid of the confederate flags right yeah the uh, confederate statues are like the the oldest participation trophies in history yeah i i i i am there's such a there's such a feeling of we were hoodwinked no 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 no, no, no. If the sign said, don't press the button, and the con man in front of you said, no, I promise you, it's okay, press the button. I don't work here, but it's time to shake things up. Press the button. And you pressed the button. You were not hoodwinked. You were willfully ignorant. And that is different. So, I feel very angry right now about a lot of things. 
And one of those things is... <sighs> Sorry, I just got a little carried away there. One of those things is the general sense of double standard mm-hmm. that exists inherently in a song like Honky Tonk Badonkadonk exclusively yeah. being performed... Uh, yeah, I don't feel this song represents a any I don't feel this song represents the badonkadonk side of things in any way uh, the three men who wrote it Dallas Davidson, Randy Hauser and Jamie Johnson as well as the artist who recorded it Trace Adkins all four of them are white mm-hmm. and all four of them are country musicians that's really all I've got I just want to stop yelling and so you, you should take over I think it's important to talk about um, the actual kind of view of cultural appropriation and sort of the, the ugh, how am I going to say this? Let, let me finish before, before, let me get all of this out. Kind of the, the Twitter, the Twitterati view of cultural appropriation. When, when Becky from the Sig Delt sorority dresses up like Pocahontas for Halloween, cultural appropriation, but mostly it's just really fucking stupid. Like, you should know better, Becky. It's offensive and it's dumb because of the history behind it uh, and and what it's doing, but it's it's kind of draws the line at just really fucking stupid because Becky probably didn't wasn't trying to be um, a piece of shit. She just, she's just dumb. But what Trace Atkins is doing here and his writers is literally appropriating an entire genre of music that's based around both race and class and culture that is not his and actually appropriating it and whitewashing it, literally whitewashing it, what is this Caucasian nonsense, to make money. And that is, that is like aggressive appropriation uh, in, in a really, really malicious, gross way. This is the thing that you've heard a lot about, that cultural appropriation. Like this, this is it. This is, this is the core. This is the worst version of it. And it's the one that you should be the most mad about. Yeah, when, yeah, when a famous person from the majority that that part of culture does not belong to decides to use it to make money, that is almost invariably white nonsense. Yeah, and and, and I think you were kind of hinting at this, but you you wanted to kind of be like hashtag not all, but I do think this is this is marketing marketed as a essentially a rap song for people who would never. Who who would would say a lot of racist stuff before they they listen to any rap music? Like, like yeah. that's who this is for. Yes, I don't. And it's gross. I I hate that it, I am saying not all, but you know what? Yeah, not all. For real, not all. Not everyone who appreciates country music has an inherent disdain for black culture. That would be the stupidest yeah. thing and I could say. What a fucking dumb thing. But there uh, is yeah, enough I, of white America that. that believes. There's enough of white America that believes that everything should belong to them. And they should get to remove the people from whom that culture is from. Exactly. And you cannot have the culture without having the people. If Trace Adkins wanted to record this with a black country artist, uh, I'd probably be a little bit more okay with that. Yeah. I would think it's pandery. I, mean- I would think it's a little white saviory. But I think I would feel there's at least an attempt to get. Some I would probably prefer a hip hop artist. Don't get me wrong, but I I would at least see it as an attempt. 
Yeah, there, there's nary a person in this music video who is not pasty white and probably has really strong opinions about uh, kneeling. Oh my god. <laughs> there's no way you, if you have any, any good faith opinion on culture and and race that that this wouldn't infuriate you um it's it's just top to bottom disgusting not to mention it's just a really fucking bad song (laughs) yeah it was dumb i mean i'm not a country guy like i've said i feel like more and more when i passingly hear country in places i'm not like ah but i'm like literally never like let me click it it's just like doesn't phase me background noise as much uh this was not good this phased me i was phased i've i've often joked about um hotel california being my least favorite song of all time um and there is an aspect of that song i just i just really hate all five minutes of that riff and and how that song is performed and i've I've paid cover bands who were like paying like people could tip them to play a song i've I've paid a band to stop playing (laughs) hotel california like it's kind of it's kind of my thing to hate that song a lot but yeah, you know, I mean, deep down, like, I, like I hate, I, I, I don't despise the Eagles for making Hotel California. Um, I fucking hate everything about this song and pretty much everybody involved with it because it is representative of a lot of the worst things about, about us, essentially. Yeah, yeah I, I wish it didn't exist. I wish this could be scrubbed from existence. It's an insult. It, it's 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 gross. It's it's. Yeah, it's almost like, um, okay, so that whole Apu debate, mm-hmm. it's that. Sure. It's like, I know you wanted to say it, and I know you think it's fun to say honky-tonk, badonka donk oh, it's just fun, it's just words, uh, that's culture, uh, you gotta stop, that's all. I don't know. I, I can't even believe this song. Yeah. I can't believe I thought for 15 years this song was a joke. And I mean, it, it's just the the video, the song, it, it takes everything from hip hop and and it, it scrubs it and just leaves a marketable shell and then fills it up with, with manure. Yeah. <laughs> it, just, it just fills up with pandery, stinky shit um, for all of the people who just would get mad about it otherwise. Um, and that's not to say I that, mean it's it's a rap video like just just white people doing it and that's not to say that white people can't make hip hop that is not the dumb statement we're making we're saying though that no. if who you are and the art you make is something else and the art you make belongs to a community and you are now telling that community they're invited to be part of this thing because you've decided that part of that culture is yours to share you better know what the fuck you're doing We've praised the Beastie Boys on this show. Um, I don't think any of us love his music, but like, I don't think any of us would say that um, like ninety nine percent of what Macklemore was doing was like appropriating black culture for gain. No, um, I don't ever think we've accused him of appropriating black culture. We've accused him of appropriating gay culture, though. Oh yes, that is true. I, I did briefly forget about that. Um, but but we're not saying that white people can't do rap or hip hop, like. That's, that's not the case. We, we, we praise the Beastie Boys. Um, wh- what we are saying is this is removing essentially all blackness and repra- replacing it with pandery. It's the, it's the natural fulfillment of when we said 
country music is hip-hop for racists. <laughs> like, many moons ago in that Q&A episode, like, this is that. This is that comes... This is that got, that got struck by lightning and became a sentient concept. Like, that is what this song and video is. You know, that... You just said some really brilliant things that led me to a thing I've never known how to say before. And I think I can sum up why Eminem was so a thing for our generation and why he was so different and why we've never mm-hmm. called him problematic for this one thing. Because rapping about being white is central to Eminem's identity. Eminem has never tried to sound black. Eminem has never right. appropriated black culture. Eminem's rapping is explicitly about his whiteness and about being from a white trailer park and about his white trash ex-wife and about the struggles of being this bleached blonde milk-colored nightmare. But that's his shtick. You know, he... He's never once... That's what we said about the Beastie Boys. The Beastie Boys never tried to be like, hey, this is how you rap. The Beastie Boys always respectfully sat on their sort of like digital rap sidelines. And the problem here is this does not have that respect. This Eminem has stood behind Dr. Dre for a very mm-hmm. long time. There's yeah. a, it's, it really is about respect for culture. And I, part exactly. of I think why we're over-explaining it is because, you know, you're white and I'm Latino and white, but neither one of us is a member of the black community, and we don't want to speak for a community. We're trying to speak for decency and the community of correctness, not political correctness, correctness. And the correct thing is not to take someone else's anything, claim it is yours, and give it out. And Mm -hmm. that is what we are saying this song did. Yeah, there's no acknowledgement of where this song was was the bones that he dug up to make this song like there's no acknowledgement of any of that it's it's just like it's just it's the joke about uh, arnold palmer walking into a bar and the bartender being like hey try this it's it's lemonade and iced tea and arnold palmer going this is great i invented this uh, like it's it's that joke like it's trace atkins thinks that this is him be- because for the song to be successful it, it can't acknowledge that stuff for its audience. And and that makes me, again, want want to, to puke acid from my stomach all, all, all over his face and turn his face into a skeleton, a screaming skeleton. Well, then I think all we can do now is talk about cascadas every time we touch. <laughs> yeah. Sorry they have to follow that, cascada. Um, this song doesn't offend me to my core. Every time we touch, I get this feeling. is just so boring to me the song is that i made a comment about early lady gaga just sounding like generic gay euro trash i honestly and i'm I'm gonna put this out there i don't know that there's a huge difference between this and poker face okay i don't think there is i think the fame is very average i think the fame and, and has just dance and then i think the fame monster is fucking glorious and i would cut most of the songs from the fame so it's one of those situations where this is just sort of generic gay Euro pop. This is just the sort of shit that I feel like, you know, Boyzone made. It's it's just very gay dance, shake your head and dance, yeah. dance. And it's just like so generic. And I love that Cascada managed to have a strong 
career. She actually managed to have like seven or eight hits. Don't know how she did it. Oh, really? Yeah. She. You might know Evacuate the Dance Floor. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. That sounds yeah. exactly like this. <laughs> yeah. Evacuate the Dance Floor. I'm infected by the sound. Stop the Beat is Killing Me. Like, it's, it's actually a really clever song. But again, the music is just very... Yeah. It's just very all the same dance song that you've heard a million times. By the way, I was popping yeah. and locking that whole time. So I think I think this song is such a sad note to go out on because this was such an up and down now, and I really do feel like the ending really dragged it down. This is like this is one of those movies where you think that they're about to find out. It'd be like if Ruby. Okay, so I okay, I'm gonna back things up. The first time I saw Rudy, I was only kind of paying attention, right? (laughs) And I was probably on something, but I was like 26 before I knew Rudy wasn't about like a mentally disabled kid getting to play football. (laughs) Did you mix it up with radio? Is that the one where they go off the cliff? That's that's the Cuba Gooding one where he's uh, like a handicapped guy who is like a as a sports equipment manager or something like that for a football team. I guess I don't really remember either. Maybe that's what I thought Rudy was this whole time. Mystery solved. Oh my god, I think I combined those two movies. Oh, okay. Something like that. I don't really remember exactly where what role football plays in that movie, if any, but I feel like it does. Oh my god, okay. Uh, I don't even remember where I was going with this. Um, oh no, I don't remember... <laughs> cut the Rudy stuff. <laughs> no, absolutely not. It's too good. I'll just say um, this Cascada song I think would have now there is a version of this that's just piano and like ballady. I don't know if she re-recorded it or just like they just took the vocals and put it over a piano version. Um, I think it's a little bit better. They just candlelit it up. Yeah. Um, this song, uh, the you know, the Euro Euro Trash version, you know, back when I had knees and any kind of stamina, would have this would have been like a cool song to play on expert DDR. <laughs> Wow, you just made yourself sound really enticing in bed. Oh yeah, absolutely. Uh, <laughs> give me give me forty five seconds on place to nap. <laughs> I'll show you a mediocre time. <laughs> right, like sometimes I sometimes I think about the way I'm portraying myself on these shows where I'm trying to be not too confident, not too cocky or anything, and I try and act you know chill. And sometimes like man, I'm just so terrible. <laughs> like I listen back and I'm like, God, I wouldn't support me. I sound so unconfident. Oh. Um, yeah, stuff. I, I don't. Like. I don't think. Uh, you know, I don't want to speak for anyone in the gay community, but I don't think any straight woman should ever fuck a dude who has a podcast. Period. So. <laughs> Yeah, I gotta keep uh, this one under wraps. That's fair. Except, uh, I think gay dudes should all have sex with dudes that have three podcasts. <laughs> exactly three. Three podcasts, ladies and gentlemen. Do you know what that makes me? Prime real estate with way too much audio equipment. I got headphones for days. Headphones and comfy blankets, cause I know what gay guys like. Gay guys like comfy blankets. Come on over, guys. Big pillows too. <laughs> well, uh, on that note, Nico, where can people find you? Evidently in my bedroom waiting. Uh, you can find my music project at facebook.com slash action duo. You can find my super awesome comic book starring Kid Riot, the world's coolest speedster, over at kidriotcomics.com. You can also check me out on Instagram at nicoaction. That's N-I-C-O-A-C-T-I-O-N. Uh, I think you can also find me there on Twitter. However, I am positive anything I ever posted to Tumblr was deleted. <laughs> R.I.P. Tumblr. Uh, you could find me at Chris Podcasts on Twitter. 
Um, also, if you uh, like what you heard, you know, we finally really got back to, to our roots, a, a deep dig into a now volume, and we had a good time doing it. So if you like this or anything that we do, uh, an iTunes review would be awesome. Spread the word uh, right into the mailbag if you want to explain the movie Rudy or radio to Nico. Uh, now and again, cast at gmail.com and check out everything else. I forgot the other shows. I forgot. I keep forgetting I have other shows. I was just going to say, check out everything else on the Cage Club podcast network, including... Uh, X is for podcast, which is an examination of the X-Men comic book franchise, starting with Giant Size X-Men number one, but at this point, we just talk about anything. Man, we just talk about so many 70s comics, my eyes are bleeding. And uh, MCU.HTML, an examination of the inclusivity, diversity, and construction of the Marvel Cinematic Universe that I do with my husband over on our show, HTML, which stands for Husbands Talking, more or less. And uh, and and that's it. That's now it. Get out. Is, uh, has turned twenty one. We're not. We're, I don't think we're going to celebrate the year that I can get uh, that I can rent cars. I think I think this is pretty much it for landmark nows until sixty nine. So in like ten years, we'll get to that one. Yeah. And until then, with uh, back on the now train next month with now twenty two, Nico and I will catch you on the flip side. It's there.